0: Coming up on Tech Nation, the perpetually best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Seven years ago, I interviewed Dr. Bessel van der Kolk when the book first came out in hardback, and its paperback has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 155 weeks. The same book. We'll hear that interview today. We'll also hear our 2005 interview with Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO of the now-defunct Theranos, who's currently standing trial for fraud. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. In
0: 2017, I spoke with Edward Tufte, who is best known for his work in data visualization. I asked him, who or what is a cherry picker?
2: I think we're all cherry pickers, because once we have an idea, uh, all history will back us up, because we... With confirmation bias, we select things, we cherry-pick. I think uh, almost all scholars are, particularly in the social sciences, tend to be cherry-pickers because uh, uh, they know the truth to some extent, and they uh, find evidence, they cherry-pick the evidence. And this is an enormous problem for the consumers of information to identify whether what they're looking at has been cherry-picked. And so if the presenter uh, fails to allow access to their underlying data. F- guarantee. That's a cherry picker. Because they're afraid that somebody would look at the underlying data and find out how they looted it. <laughs> and they'll give you all kinds of excuses for why you can't have their data. It would uh, violate attorney-client privilege. It's trademarked. It's copyrighted. It would violate the HIPAA law, health privacy. And the real jerks will say, buddy, if I were to tell you this, I'd have to kill you. And if somebody says that, you should stand up and say, mother, you're a cherry picker. <laughs> so it's failure to provide sources. Another way to identify a, a cherry picker is if they fly very high high over the area. And it's in a kind of jargon, high-level flight. And so they talk about growth hacking, the analytics, and that more kinds of, of stuff. And the way to, as a presenter, to convince yourself that, you know, you're not a cherry picker and you're not just cherry picking the current jargon is by occasionally drilling down and showing that you have some hands-on experience. And so cherry pickers don't want to do that, or they often won't. And so that's another way is they have have a mastery of one level of kind of jargon and uh, cherry picking. The final way is kind of intuitive, but I think it's a very good one. If a presentation If a technical report is just too good to be true, you're probably right, it's too good to be true. This is particularly the case in social science, which is very, very difficult. Social science is not rocket science, it's harder than rocket science. Real scientists have this wonderful golden guarantee that everything that they see and measure and think about is a product of the universal laws of nature, which apply to every particle in the universe forever human behavior. We're just these little bugs on this little planet. And it's very difficult. To, we can't do experiments on many, on many human situations. And so social science is really hard to compared to the natural sciences where there's a truth guarantee, the, law, the laws of nature. And that's a big difference. And, it's, and also people are doing studies about people. The
0: flawed studying the flawed. Oh, good. In a a way,
2: yes. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, you write about uh, cherry-picking in Beautiful Evidence, uh, and the chapter title wins the prize. It's called Corruption in Evidence Presentations, Effects Without Causes, Cherry-Picking, Overreaching, Chart-Junk, and the Rage to Conclude.
2: That's a line from Flaubert. It's in his letters, and my mother's research assistant translated it from the French. All humanity is besieged by the rage to conclude, and everyone everywhere thinks they know about the truth and about the mighty powers and everything. And on the contrary, he says, the greatest geniuses have never concluded.
0: This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Edward Tufty. His many books on data visualization include Visual Explanations. A professor emeritus of political science, statistics, and computer science at Yale University, he today travels around the country giving his signature one-day seminar, Presenting Data and Information, which could have the alternate title, Don't Be a Cherry Picker. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk about his book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. It's turned into a phenomenon, still selling seven years later, atop the New York Times paperback bestseller list. We'll hear his 2014 interview today. Then we go back even further to 2005. That's 17 years ago. We'll hear from a recent college student, Elizabeth Holmes, who raised $6 million and founded Theranos. Today, she's on trial for multiple counts of fraud.
2: Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at MindK.com. And now... Dr. Bessel
0: van der Kolk.
3: Legitimizing the problems of traumatized people was a very major step. And from being just crazy and reprehensibly ill-adjusted, we got to recognize that certain events just push people over the brink and have terrible consequences. So it not only paid attention to the needs of the, let's say, victims, or that's, that's not the word I like very much, uh, survivors, whatever. The, the people uh, who experience uh, these traumas. Trauma, but also that there are certain things you can do to prevent this form of mental illness and this form of, of disruptions of people's lives and people's family life. And so it, it is a very profound diagnosis. So that's the upside. and. Okay. Uh, there's more to the upside to the downside. What the downside is that it became sort of everything got to be called PTSD. A catch-all. And it's a catch-all and you get PTSD from waiting for a bus. uh, And that's, so it got exaggerated in some ways. And the other thing that I have been working very hard on is that trauma has a different impact on different stages of mind and brain development. And so, All trauma is not the same and being traumatized by a stranger, an accident or an assault as an adult is a totally different mind-brain experience than being molested by your own parents or abandoned as a small child. And sadly, my profession has yet to make the distinction and that is very bad for people who have had those very early experiences because it leads to much more complex consequences.
0: Well, you've just actually pointed out a number of things that have been sort of enlightened by your book, and that PTSD used to sort of be known by its characteristics. You can't sleep, you're overindulging in some kind of self-medicated activity, you might be aggressive. I mean, there's all this big list. But you're, in a sense, taking it on the inside, if you will. You know, you say the body keeps the score, and you say, brain, mind, and body— What's the effect on the body, what's the effect on the brain, and what's the effect uh, on the mind?
3: So, first of all, we are our bodies, and we forget about it. Uh, and the job of the brain is to keep the body alive and the body going. For my book, I looked at all the Nobel Prize speeches given on brain and behavior, and every single one of them, uh, from Pavlov in 1904 till Aylman 1991, says something about the brain is there to keep the body alive, to keep the body moving, And my favorite quote is Roger Sperry for his 1981 Nobel Prize speech. He says, the brain is the organ that keeps the muscles moving. It has a few other secondary functions. (laughs) (laughs) And so it is about the body. And trauma is very much about the body because it's about getting trapped and having inescapable shock. Something happens to you. Stuff happens to people all the time. And we are very resilient because as long as we can move and do something about it, we are going to be okay. We're an astoundingly resilient species. But when you're held down, trapped, trapped in a situation, physically trapped, like in an operating room where you wake up during anesthesia, a little kid who's being beaten, molested, and you cannot move, the inability to move and do something is really at the core of becoming traumatized.
0: Now... We can say the brain is driving the body. Where does the mind come in? The mind comes
3: into interpretation of what you make of it and the meaning you make of it. And the mind is what we share with each other. And so mind is culture. And so different cultures interpret all that subterranean body stuff in a different way. And one of my favorite things to do is to teach about trauma in parts of the world that have a very different culture from ours. And noticing that They have the same core symptoms, but how they talk about it is profoundly different from one culture to another. And what they do about it is different from one culture to another.
0: Now give us some examples.
3: For example, um, our culture, which is sort of derived from European culture and mainstream culture, when we think about terrible things, the way you deal with terrible things is by gulping alcohol. I uh, do sort of the old white man's tradition, if you feel bad, you take a swig. And indeed traumatized people swig a lot. And that is the way that we treat it. And that's the way the, way the mainstream medicine also treats it. Like you feel bad, take a pill to make it go away. I think all cultures have some of that. Uh, but other cultures like in China, people start moving their body in funny ways and they call it Qigong. And when you start practicing Qigong, you're able to calm that body down without the use of drugs. Or in, in India people do yoga and again you calm your body down uh, without using drugs. Or in Africa people do drumming and moving together in synchrony and moving in synchrony with other people is, as everybody knows from experience, you cannot be in sync with somebody without having a sense of joy and belonging. Uh, so. My hunch is that tango dancing is probably as good a treatment for trauma, possibly, as sitting down and telling a psychologist about how bad you feel. Not that one excludes the other, but this. So the different cultures have different ways of dealing with bodies that feel frightened, upset, and helpless. And Western culture doesn't have much of that.
0: Now, you already answered another question I had, but I'd like you to go deeper into it, and that is that. All trauma is really not the same. Right. If you witness it versus it happens to you, if it it perpetrated on you by a complete stranger versus someone you love and trust. Right. Do we have degrees of trauma? How do we describe these differences?
3: See, to my mind, there's there's two systems in the mind-brain. One of them is the danger system that gets very affected by trauma, and the other one is our attachment system. We are social animals, and our much of our brain is there to connect with each other to collaborate with each other to divide our labor to communicate our needs etc etc and that's a different brain system and a very large part of the brain is occupied by that and so if trauma occurs in the context of intimate relationships and somebody who you depend on and sleep with or Core to your being
0: somehow, yeah. Uh,
3: (laughs) If that person messes with you, then the whole notion that we are there for each other to comfort each other and to collaborate together start collapsing. And then a whole other series of problems start emerging, having to do with trust, collaboration, relaxation, and so generally feeling that, that you belong and you can collaborate with other people. And so that becomes a very large part of having been traumatized in the context of, of close relationships, which is a much more common problem, actually, than uh, being hurt by strangers.
0: Well, how common is that?
3: There's probably... I know that there's more women who have been killed by partners since ni- 2001 than soldiers have been, who have been killed in combat. There's more kids who, have be, who get killed by guns than get killed by leukemia. So these are are gigantic numbers. These are big numbers. Uh, One million kids a year get reported for child abuse and neglect. Uh, These are huge numbers, and it makes the whole issue a gigantic public health issue. Because if you get molested and hurt as a kid, your chances to become a well-functioning, productive adult go seriously down. It doesn't necessarily condemn people to never re- lead a productive life, but it makes it much harder.
0: How does it manifest itself later on?
3: Later on in terms of very much about not being able to, to catch the wave with other people, uh, not being able to feel comfortable with people, and not being able to put your, ne- other, your own needs in context of other people's needs collaboration, feeling safe, uh, seeing that somebody else has a bad day and not overreacting to that, or noticing that you have a bad day and not spilling out all over the place, uh, things like that.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. With a postdoc from Harvard, he's a professor of psychiatry at Boston University Medical School. Dr. van der Kolk is founder and medical director of the Trauma Center in Boston and director of the Complex Trauma Treatment Network of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. With several scholarly books and over 100 scientific articles, he's here today with a book meant for everyday audiences, The body keeps the score, brain, mind, and body in the healing of trauma. Now let's turn to recovery, whether it's Mm. recovery immediately thereafter or recovery later on. What are the tools we have today for recovery?
3: Well, very big distinction the wait-after, and the chronic issues. Because the acute issue is that something terrible has happened to you and you get stuck in a state of fear, terror, and disbelief and helplessness. If acutely there is somebody there for you, or people there for you who make you feel safe, who say, oh my God, it's terrible what happened to you. They recognize the trauma. They recognize it. The trauma is out there. People respond to it appropriately. and Nobody blames anybody. The prognosis is generally very, very good. What really makes a trauma a trauma oftentimes is not the event itself, but the fact that you feel too ashamed about what happened to be able to talk about it. You feel you cannot talk about it because the people who you should talk to are the perpetrators. You get covered with patriotic slogans instead of being able to uh, tell things, and also having done things in the context of having been traumatized. For example, a soldier who goes to war sees his best friend being killed and in response to that does something that I think most of us would do, they commit atrocities. Because if your best friend gets killed, you go on a rampage. That sort of makes sense to me in a way in those extreme situations. Striking back. Yeah, striking back. Like you go crazy when you see something terrible happens to somebody you love. Uh, And then they do that And then they say, oh, my God, I'm a monster. Look what I've done. And then you cannot talk about it anymore. And then you really live with that horrible feeling of what you have done and what you have experienced, which to some degree is also oftentimes true uh, with kids who have been abused or kids who are sexually molested, is that they blame themselves for having gone uh, gone along with the perpetrator, of having accommodated themselves to the perpetrator. So in the long range... Uh, people's feelings about themselves and how they have come to despise themselves for their how helpless they were and how afraid they were and how they didn't offer resistance, that they feel like they invited it. I know a lot of incest victims uh, who say, I loved my daddy or I loved my uncle. And so this must have happened because I loved them too much. So it's my fault. Mm. Huh? And then saying to somebody, oh, you were just a little girl and it was his responsibility, makes absolutely no difference. Because it's the wrong part of the brain. As so your rational part of your brain, knows that no four-year-old is, should be responsible for their sexual activities. But that part of the brain is not in charge of that basic understanding. It's very primitive, very elementary. It's in your survival brain. It serves your attitude. It becomes part of your map of the world. Uh, So the deeper part of your brain has a map of the world of you, who who you are in relationship to your surroundings. And that map of the world has nothing to do with reason or understanding. It has something to do with your experience of how you affect your surroundings and how your surroundings affect you.
0: Now, can we get to that part of the brain?
3: We can get to that part of the brain, but not through understanding and reason. Uh, So we can get there by allowing oneself to feel things deeply, And noticing what goes on with oneself, first of all, so you need to encounter yourself. And so yoga, meditation, uh, mindfulness of any sort is an important prerequisite of observing what those feelings are and what you really experience inside of yourself. But because these feelings are so Unpleasant, most people don't want to go there.
0: Well, many huh? of what you were yeah. recounting yeah. in your book are people who were who very agitated. So right. the idea that yeah. they might be mindful or right. sit still to take yoga, exactly. oh, whoa. This doesn't well, you
3: don't seem... have to sit still to do yoga. That's well, a great no, thing. but then calm down do and be very
0: deliberate. <laughs>
3: right. yeah. So we know that meditation activates the part of your brain that allows you to get access to that animal emergency brain the part of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex gets activated the more still and self-observant you become the more you activate that part of your brain and the more you get to tolerate and live with and befriend your internal experience but of course if you're a traumatized person feeding yourself feels upsetting and terrible Uh, so that's why you need to go there gradually and that's why you don't ask traumatized people to go to a three-day meditation retreats, but you start with yoga and just say feel your neck and just touch your toes with your hands bent over and just focus on just doing things that get you into yourself but they're more exercises. Or um, probably a very good treatment for trauma although we don't have the data for that uh, are things like boxing. Really getting very mindful about what is that person doing to me? What is going to happen so you need to think very quickly about, okay, this is what this person is planning to do, this is what I need to do with my body in order to respond to that. And so you set up these circuits of observation of yourself and other people. And those are the circuits that actually get very damaged by trauma, and doing things like martial arts, boxing, maybe, maybe tango dancing, would probably repair those circuits, where you can really feel what's going on inside of yourself and feel okay about what's going on inside of yourself.
0: This right. is in the same yeah. tradition in a sense of what we've talked about on this show multiple times of either rewiring your brain right. by laying down new paths or saying, well, gee, what's happening to us because we're using computers and we're doing all this kind of thing. That's right. What we're saying is like, here is a damaged part of, your, of the yeah. brain. If you've suffered some kind of trauma, how do we rewire it?
3: Exactly. And so we what we have really learned most about in the past 20 or 30 years now is what part of the brain gets damaged by trauma. And how, um, how the big impact is very deep down in our brain, in our reptilian brain. And you're, you're, you're brain. like
0: putting, putting right the base of your skull. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the neck there. It's deep in there.
3: It's our little reptilian brain, the b- brains that we have when we come into the world as little babies, nothing there. And that's the part of our brain that makes us hungry, afraid, eats, uh, sleep. And that's where trauma hits. Uh, You know, you get traumatized, you don't eat anymore, or you're gulping food, or uh, you can't sleep anymore, you're sleeping all the time. So it's very, very elementary parts of your brain get affected by it. Parts of the brain that civilized people don't even want to talk about. And so uh, uh, overcoming trauma really is in part predicated on working with those parts of the brain.
0: Now, we now today have things like fMRI and we have EEGs. Can we see a traumatized brain? Yes, yeah, we,
3: we, we, we can see a lot. What can uh, we see? Um, we can see, so what we saw, we did the first neuroimaging study of people who are reliving their trauma and the most striking finding to me was the fact that the left frontal lobe goes offline, which is the speech center of the brain. People becoming dumbfounded or speechless terror, as I think Shakespeare called it. And so when you get traumatized, you are not a very articulate person. You just can activate uh, Wernicke's area, so you can still say four-letter words, but you can't really say what you feel. And for me, that was a gigantic image there uh, because, you know, We therapists love to yak and we love to talk and love to explain things. And there we saw that the whole understanding part of the brain gets wiped out. So that forced me to go deeper into the brain and to other parts and find, to explore treatments that weren't developed by me but that I took seriously. to go to deeper in other parts of the brain.
0: Before we get to that, let's talk about some other places in the in right. the brain that would, I I guess we say, light up right. if you are traumatized. Or shut
3: down. Or shut down. That's or a, shut down. That's a, what, what lights up is so the fear center of the brain. A, that, that the part of your brain that, that, um, that filters what's important what's unimportant. What's relevant and what's irrelevant. So your whole sense of relevance gets shifted. And you get, your brain gets uh, the brain areas that say, this is really dangerous, start becoming hyperactive, and you, you, you start getting over-focused on threat. And so you, you have this chronic sense of danger that's going on, and you st- keep startling, oh, there it is, there it is. And so it makes it very hard for you to concentrate on what's really going on, because your brain is sort of re- gets reset to focus on threat. Um, to, to give you another example, um, a close friend of mine, Alexander McFarland in Australia, is testing all the soldiers in Australia who go off to war and who come back, and looks what happens in their brain before and after combat. And what he shows is that with every deployment the back of their brains, which are supposed to have sort of slow waves to monitor your, your body and to make sure that you're okay and that you notice when you're hungry and sleepy and all sort of ordinary tasks of the uh, housekeeping parts of your body, uh, that becomes increasingly hyperactive. So you increasingly feel under threat and that something is wrong in a sort of very subliminal b- way because that's not a reason part of your body, of your mind. It's just a detection part of your brain. Your frontal lobe um, activity becomes more and more slowed down, except when you're under threat. So it becomes very hard to just enjoy what's happening right now, because your body is continuously agitated, and when somebody smiles at you, or you hear a nice piece of music, or it's a beautiful day like it is today, uh, you can't take it in. Because the, the part of your brain that's supposed to be there fully present here now is gone. Is not totally gone, but it's it's has decreased activity. And in that regard, actually, it's very similar to kids with ADHD. Have slowed waves in the frontal lobe, and it makes it hard to uh, inhibit yourself, to say, don't do this right now, this not the right thing to do. But it also makes it hard to just enjoy the moment and to play with your kids and to say what a cute little kid I have uh, because that threat keeps going on in your brain.
0: You're listening to my interview with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk about his 2014 book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, our 2005 interview with Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO of the now defunct Theranos, who is currently on trial for multiple counts of fraud. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk about his best-selling book, *The Body Keeps the Score: Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma*. At this writing, with 155 weeks on the New York Times paperback bestseller list. One thing that's clear is that one person's trigger can be another person's comfort.
3: Absolutely. All our brains are different and so when you say uh, I have the perfect treatment for traumatic stress, I always say shoot those people because, you know, nobody has the perfect treatment for traumatic stress. You may have a very good treatment for that particular person but one size never fits all because different traumatized people have different settings of different parts of their brain that need to be very carefully attended to. An example is... Has the threat detection system of your brain or it's actually more significant, but is existentially important for me, it sits in the right amygdala. And so I have this, uh, very early in my career, a girl, very blonde, 16-year-old girl comes to my office and later on it turns out she had been kidnapped out of a Scandinavian country for a child pornography ring in the U.S. Mm. and she walks into my office, she hears my accents. As she burst out crying, I said, I'm home. Because somehow my Dutch accent reminds her of the Swedish that she heard as a little kid. So that's the good part of it. The bad part of it, I saw two Dutch women who were molested by their fathers or uncles or something as kids who moved to America in part in order to get away from all of that. And then they walk into my office. They hear my voice. And they immediately start seeing me as a perpetrator. Because the sound of my voice reminds their primitive part of their brain of their perpetrator. Their frontal lobe doesn't know what's going on. They just develop an intense sense of dislike and say it's because I said something or some damn excuse. Because the frontal lobe always makes, is a meaning-making system. So we always make sense out of whatever we do, even though when we do the neuroimaging, we see, oh, what's really going on is that the threat system of the brain gets activated, you feel frightened, and now you have to make an explanation of why you feel so frightened.
0: So who yeah. your therapist is is really huge, huge difference.
3: I think that the face and the voice of your therapist are very powerful Change organs I mean faces and voices is how we wire our brain huh? as infants that 's all we have. Huh? we have touch, we have our mother 's face a parent 's face, and the voice and that wires our map of the world who is safe there's actually quite a bit in my book about that synchrony of voices and faces uh, because we have learned a lot about from attachment researchers about when you have a feeling and the person who is with you moves their face and their voice in synchrony with you, you feel safe and you feel understood and you can sort of set up a dance and you get an internal notion that if I start getting upset, sooner or later that other person will get back in sync with me and I'll start feeling better. So that's at the core of our brain system is that interpersonal neurobiology of how we soothe each other, feel safe with each other. But if the person who you're with as a kid freezes their face all the time and you don't have the sense that you can light up a room, that anybody is happy to see you, you will have a map of the world of yourself as a bad, uh, useless individual. And you can win the Nobel Prize. And you still will have this fundamental sense that I'm a useless person.
0: Never be good enough.
3: You'll never be good enough until you rewire that part of the brain.
0: So let's talk about rewiring. There's all kinds Uh, of things uh, you talk about uh, in your book. Let's start with something called EMDR. uh What's that?
3: So EMDR is this very curious treatment that Francine Shapiro invented, and I've always been puzzled. It's so simple. Why that wasn't invented 3,000 years ago because it's so simple. And basically you call up the memory of what you saw, heard, felt in your body, uh, just the sensations and then you ask people to follow your fingers when you move them from side to side in front of their eyes and you don't ask people to tell you about the trauma. And what you basically do, you set up an integrative process in the brain that makes all these sounds and the images and these sensations that all were associated with terror, somehow mysteriously and miraculously, um, fantastically, uh, scientifically interesting, knits it together into a story. And so when the EMDR process is over, people say, yeah, it happened to me. It was a long, uh, some time ago, last week or a month ago or five years ago. It just really sucks. It's char- awful. The charge but it's is awful. gone. The charge is gone. It's just, it's just a bad thing that happened to you, and so we are doing the study right now. But we, I don't have the data yet. But what I talk about it in the book is the fascinating parallel between EMDR and REM sleep. Oh. And uh, mm-hmm. it's like so many years ago, some colleagues of mine and I both I- independently. Uh, discovered something that we thought was fairly unimportant, namely that traumatized people tend to wake themselves up out of their dreaming sleep. And then later on we find that EMDR works so well, and then my friend Bob Stiggold, who wants the Harvard uh, Sleep Laboratory, sort of discovers, one of the people who discovers that we need REM sleep in order to integrate our daytime experiences. So if something happens, a reparative process in your Dream sleep that sort of helps you to put things into context and into perspective and to knit your autobiographical store of memories together and it allows you deep down to feel again oh yeah there's summer and there's winters so and there's times to dig out your car and there's times to do other things and it becomes sort of a part of the flow of time and so it's likely at this point with the state of the science that our dream sleep is highly responsible for that creation of this internal flow. And when we learned that, suddenly our findings of 30 years ago of REM interruption insomnia became, oh, that's interesting because traumatized people cannot do that because they cannot dream about their trauma because the moment you start dreaming about it, you wake yourself up because you, you become too terrified.
0: You're reliving your yeah. trauma and you're too terrified. And you
3: and just wake up. and You don't want to go to sleep because you want to feel it again. And my hunch at this point is that this is what EMDR does. But, you know, it's too early to tell. You know? But that's the great, great thing about doing science. You build a hypothesis, and then you test it, and you see if it's true or not. If it's not true, you have to find another explanation.
0: And I might yeah. be working on my, my study right now, but I'm always looking down the road.
3: <laughs> yeah, but you always, always think about, okay, is this true or is this not true? But you really always need to test, and that makes this feel so exciting, is that, uh, you know, if you get it right... People get better. If you don't get it right, people get better. So you have to look for something else.
0: Now, what Uh, are you studying now, and what technologies are you using?
3: The technology that I'm studying most of all is uh, neurofeedback. And uh, about—actually, it was again inspired by my Australian friend who came up with some uh, EEGs, about 14, 15 years ago.
0: And that's where they pinch all uh, the places on your scalp yeah, and yeah, see Yeah, you all put all the the electrodes, and
3: you see the brain waves. So They've this, been
0: doing that for decades. Yeah,
3: and so what happened is that the fMRI, where you can picture brain activity in a different way, became the prevailing technology. And so EEGs have sort of been on the background. But uh, some of my friends started to do EEGs, and he showed that the waves that you need you know, for the brain to focus and to learn stuff were very severely impaired in traumatized people. And I was very intrigued with that finding because I'd also found that traumatized people have a very difficult time learning from experience. And we all change, but traumatized people go through the same stuff over and over again. And an outsider says, but didn't you know that guys with a history of alcoholism are not the right boyfriend for you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> they go out and find another if <laughs> They
3: find out- another, oh. another one. <laughs> and so what is it about them and their brains that interferes with learning? Uh, and then my friend, I think, finds an explanation for it. And so then the question is, so if you have these abnormal brain waves, can we actually change people's brainwaves in order to set up different patterns? <laughs>
0: Is there a difference in the kind of trauma uh, a population might get from uh, Hurricane Katrina versus 9-11 versus you're in Iraq and the war is on your doorstep? Is it all individuals with a different fabric? Or or is there something in general we can say is the same or different about those kinds of situations? Our brain
3: is geared to deal with very high-stress situations. We're built, we're built that way. We're built that way. We're the most resilient animals in the world. We're, we're cockroaches may be slightly more resilient than we are. <laughs> but, but That's
0: another study <laughs> for another day. But,
3: but we're very good. And so if something really bad happens to you, if your house burns, if, you're, um, if, if there's an earthquake, we'll manage. So 9-11 actually had a very low rate of PTSD because the city of New York and the country in many ways in the world responded extraordinarily well in response to the potential traumatization of what happened that particular day. So it left an imprint on our memory, but it didn't leave people freaked out for the rest of their lives uh, because the response was so good. Hurricane Katrina was sort of the opposite. And people developed enormous amount of PTSD after Hurricane Katrina because they were filled with stress hormones and the stress hormones that you get after uh, a, a bad event are there to help you to go to Home Depot, buy two by fours, and put a new roof on your house. Uh, but if you then take people away from the disaster scene, lock them up in a little cabin, and say, We're not going to, you cannot do anything for yourself, then the stress hormones are turned against people, and then they get PTSD. So one Many very, of
0: them have never come back to New Orleans.
3: Right, And the PTSD rate is terrible. Last measurement was 33% of the population of New Orleans. Direct result of the incredibly poor management of that event.
0: This may seem, this is my final question, and this may seem like an unanswerable question, and I'm prepared for that. Uh, So many times we want to say, we're healed or we're at a sufficient level of healing if it's a, if it's a cut on our hand or right. it's a, a bump on our head. Uh, in this case, can we determine some level of healing? Can we determine that we've, we've reached a level of recovery, if you will?
3: Yes, I, I think you can. And um, I love to show videotapes of uh, work that I and other people have done with patients. You see the progression. And people are terribly upset and freaked out at the beginning and out of it and panicky, and then at the end, they say they smile and they laugh and they giggle and they say it 's over it doesn 't matter. It was a terrible thing, but boy, that was five years ago, and today is a, today i 'm here i 'm so glad i 'm alive you know uh, yes, uh, you know, and to my mind the, as a scientist you 're always looking for how do you know uh, for me, the hallmark is the giggle response. When people start laughing and they say, I'm alive, I'm okay. And when you see people re-engage with other people, and you know, there's many ways of doing that. But it's that sense of I'm no longer in danger, the threat is over. Um, but that is much easier after a car accident or even after a war than after Trauma that occurs in your own family and your own intimate relationships. Trauma, healing is possible there also, but it's a much more complex process.
0: Well, you better get out of here. you yeah. got a lot of work to okay. do. Thank you. <laughs> Please come back. See Thank us you anytime. Very much. It's good. You've been listening to a 2014 interview with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk about his continually best selling book, The Body Keeps the Score Brain, Mind, and Body. In the healing of trauma, his work and his words still speak to us today. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Seventeen years ago, almost two decades a young woman came into my interview studio at KQED, and she was already the talk of Silicon Valley. She should have been just finishing college, but she had already raised over $6 million for her vision and prototypes. She was none other than Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO of Theranos, who would go on to raise $1.3 billion. Theranos has been shut down, And she's now on trial for multiple counts of fraud. Today we air for the first time our unedited raw interview with Elizabeth Holmes. It was recorded at KQED in San Francisco on April 21st, 2005. And in its edited form, first aired on May 3rd, 2005 in the biotechnation segment of Technation. And one other thing, she said something right at the very end. That I just didn't catch at the time, but I did when I listened back. Let's see if you can pick it out as well. And now, Elizabeth Holmes. If I use traditional words to describe what we're doing, it's hard because people then
4: associate it with conventional processes for analyzing drugs and development or whatever yeah, aspects yeah. we may be applying our technology to. But um if you I mean I'm a visual person, so generally when I talk about it I like to sort of write it down and display it and say, Okay, look at the processes it's done traditionally and now take each component and look at us putting the both actually with respect to our technology new components together in a certain way as well as um with respect to the process and taking different parts of the process and uh-huh. basically condensing them.
0: Great. Uh, so Oh yeah, and it's hard it's hard. That's the challenge. Just like and it's, the funny thing is is that visual words work really well on the radio. Yeah. Because people are driving along or whatever and it they see a vision. You know, so yeah. it's, it sounds funny, but yeah it's a good thing. Okay. Rolling. Right. Um the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA has just reported that yeah, it's me with the with the with the with the mouse, <laughs> the creaky sound. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, no, 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 no. I'm glad you did. Okay. The Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA has just reported that in 2004, over 400,000 Americans reported adverse drug reactions, and 100,000 Americans died. And on the benign side, other research shows that 40 to 60% of all patients don't benefit from drugs they're prescribed. Why can't we figure out in advance who will have an adverse effect and why certain drugs aren't going to work?
4: Well, I think that part of it has to do with the fact that there is no mechanism in place to deal with monitoring patients on an individualized basis today. So... When we began Theranos, what we focused on was creating a customized medicine tool that could be used in the home by every patient, so that every day a patient could get real time analysis of their blood samples and look at not only how drugs were reacting in their body but how other may it be metabolic or um, physical sort of factors contributed to how well a given drug worked in them as an individual. Um, this is is different to the traditional process of sending a patient into a clinic at random time points, trying to get a sample of their blood, and then analyzing at that second in time what the drug is doing, because it gives you a much better and much more complete understanding of all of the factors that contribute to how well a drug works or does not work, like if the patient's taking other drugs, um, which happen to cross-interact. So, the ability to begin bringing monitoring, as we call it, into the home, we believe could fundamentally change the way that both Patients are treated as well as drugs are developed.
0: I guess right now it's called the RDX Metabolic Profiler. That's absolutely right. Well, we'll get those marketing people on that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I think it may be called something else by the end, something handy by the end. But now tell us exactly how big is it, what does it do, what do you got to do if you're using it?
4: So it's a handheld device and it's um, fully integrated. The only thing you have to do is hold your finger or you could actually do any part of your hand or your arm up toward the device. And it takes a very small sample of blood, so small that you can barely feel it. Um, Thanks to the art of glucose monitoring, uh, small blood sampling has has really... um, So it it extracts a little from your hand? Exactly. It's a little teeny needle that pulls a little teeny drop of blood. And when it gets the drop of blood, basically it runs it through what we call a biochip, which separates out all of the cells and other types of analytes in your blood which could traditionally clog a biosensor and then in real time runs many different chemistries so looking for different in this case targeted markers like the drug concentration or concentrations of other um, proteins that may be in your blood that are indicative of either risk, risk, drug reactions exactly drug reactions <laughs> exactly
0: okay
4: so once it identifies that What does it do? Just tell you. So when you do that,
0: screen says sit down. No, no, no.
4: Um, the patient doesn't see anything uh, it's, it's a very small handheld device so once once the device begins working it's a real-time event in which the blood sample is analyzed and and when it separates all of its cells out and it identifies the markers it's looking for the first thing that happens is you get a signal um, and it's basically reflective of a concentration or the presence or absence of certain um, cells you may be looking for and when that happens the electronic aspect of the device takes hold and transmit that data to um, our website where we've written what is basically biostatistics algorithms to correlate that information and profile it so we're actually in the process of (laughs) redesigning our website so that patients and physicians can log in and um, a nurse can monitor this data and then say to the patient you know you're fine again the the backdrop to all of this is when a drug is prescribed, we are coupling the system with the drug. So if you know when you go to get a drug that you have risk of an adverse event or you're not sure or you're nervous about it, you can monitor yourself for a month and then evaluate whether or not that drug is the best drug for you.
0: Um, Let's see, how do I want to say this? Okay, so we got the wireless portion of we got the thing. Uh, uh, Okay, I've got to ask you, does it hurt to have the drop of blood extracted? I can
4: tell you personally, I hate needles. They make me want to faint. <laughs> and um, I am fine with doing this drop of blood. We've actually found that and we're talking really, really small. You can barely see it. Um, but if you poke yourself in the arm or on actually the palm of your hand, it doesn't hurt as much on the finger as, a, as if you do it on the fingertip, because there's many nerves in your fingertip. So it's, it's more of a pain sight. Um, whereas your arm has thicker skin. So you actually get an even smaller drop of blood out but you don't hit the nerves that, that make you feel pain. I mean And no you've
0: thing. got and you've got plenty of blood to do your essay.
4: Oh yeah. Absolutely. That's the beauty of the technology is that we're really talking about miniaturization.
0: Now a lot of people are saying, Well, she's president and CEO, you know, we're all the engineers that built this. This is built around your patent. that's true. Um, Part of the culture of our company is
4: to make sure that we are fully integrated. So people who are working on business development, people who are working on marketing, everything revolves around the engineering aspects and the technology aspects and continually striving to be um, really the leader in creating an industry around these personalized monitoring systems. So, So yes, I am actively involved in the technology and And the technology did come from sort of an integration of work I'd done in different technical fields and the concept that if you could bring different technologies together, you could maximize the power behind them. I think it's it's very clear that this is a wonderful time for the convergence of sort of the electronic and IT infrastructure with biosystems. And in our case, it's to create biosensors. Um, so
0: Well, this is a job interview, I couldn't ask you, but I can ask you. And it's the radio, so people are surprised. How old are you, Elizabeth?
4: I'm 21.
0: You're 21. Yes. <laughs> and so you were at Stanford. What were you studying there?
4: Uh, I was studying chemical engineering, but I was also involved with electrical engineering and with some biosensing projects.
0: And, okay, so you were you were doing all this. Did you actually build a new technology while you were there or did you drop out to do that?
4: I, I actually did build other um, new technologies while I was there. I was working on a project for a major pharmaceutical company, a, a wireless biosensor, and I was working on another um, microfluidic project basically dealing with fluids in very small volumes, which is relevant to <laughs> what we're doing now, and, and then um, actually left Stanford to go work in Singapore. Um, background on the story of my life. I I have been studying Mandarin for a long time and had spent some time studying in China, wanted to go back to Asia but was interested in biotech Um, and so went to Singapore because there's a tremendous amount of resources that are being poured into research there and uh, got the opportunity to help develop a novel protein microarray and was looking at that technology and thinking about the types of sensors I built at Stanford and realizing that if you could integrate the ability to do high throughput screening, meaning the detection of many different types of markers into a little teeny chip, like the ones that we had expertise building um, here, <laughs> uh, you would you would really have a powerful sensor and truly a platform with respect to the ability to say, look, we're going to work toward monitoring anything, anytime. What's the status of the device today? Is it still just a prototype, or are you? Where are you? We okay, so. Our first applications are actually in monitoring um, acute painkillers, and that device is going into sort of the production phase. We hope to release it actually to a pharmaceutical partner around mid to late this year.
0: So you're almost there. You're almost in manufacture.
4: Oh, absolutely. I I think it's it's an iterative uh, process because what we look at is the ability to monitor different things just based on changing this little cartridge that slides into your handheld reader. So we've got the reader, now we're developing a series of different cartridges for different purposes.
0: That's great. I think I want to do one more here. Um, uh, Now how much money have you raised thus far in venture capital funds? So
4: um, in venture capital funds, we raised just over six million, and then we've also raised money from private investors.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, and you're 21. Yes. Okay, I'm gonna go tell my two children. <laughs> <laughs> they better get off their duffs, Elizabeth. <laughs> and I have one more question left for you. What Absolutely. are you gonna do when you're 30?
4: This. <laughs> we have um, ideas, and and actually. The way that we structured our company is to build what we call an innovation division. And already we have next generations of this product um, in prototype form in-house. And that is with respect to miniaturizing the system to make it faster, to make it more high throughput, to put it into all sorts of different types of devices that can take us to the point where this is automated. and You don't even have to touch your finger um, on the device.
0: No pain. Elizabeth, no pain. No pain. No pain. <laughs> That's the objective. This has been terrific, Elizabeth. Come back, see us all the time, every time. We really see you Elizabeth, come back and see us anytime, and, and uh, we really look forward to seeing you. All right. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the unedited RAW 2005 Tech Nation interview with Elizabeth Holmes, the founder and CEO of the now-defunct Theranos, currently on trial for multiple counts of fraud. And what was it she said that I didn't catch until recently? At the very end, she said that they had already, quote, next generations of this product in prototype form in-house. And with all the miniaturization and other technologies, they would, quote, take us to the point where this is automated. And wait for it. You don't even have to touch your finger to the device. What? I kind of caught it. No more pain, presumably, but think about it, how could that possibly be? You don't even have to touch the device? That's what they call, on my part, an unforced error. A transcript of the interview and audio is available at Technation dot com. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctreeb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.